As you're making your way in, I'm just going to introduce uh, Trevor Binkley to us. Uh, Trevor is, was hired last week to be the church administrator, and we're putting him forward to you as an elder candidate on February 10th. So for the next two weeks, we have the opportunity to sit under the ministry of the Word from our brother Trevor. Uh, Trevor was a member of the church uh, several years ago and went through our pastoral residency program, and we sent him out to plant a church, the Table Church, uh, and now he's back to us serving as a church administrator in hopes of him coming on uh, as an elder here pending congregational approval. So invite Trevor to come forward and deliver the word to us. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. First Peter 2, starting at verse 4, <clears throat> we'll read through verse 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture... Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those of you who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would come and illuminate your word. But we need you to give us the thoughts of the triune God. And so we ask now that you would speak your word to us and that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to understand all for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen. In traditional Japanese culture, it was not uncommon for a man to borrow money against his good name, promising repayment by the next new year. In fact... Lenders extended such loans without asking for any collateral. The reason was because they knew that a person would dare not risk their reputation, their public reputation, by defaulting on the loan. If New Year came and the person was unable to repay the debt, the debtor might actually be expected to commit ritual suicide to clear his name and to protect the honor of his family. Now, this is just one of many, many examples that Timothy Tennant offers uh, when he's explaining the, how honor and shame cultures work. Far more shocking stories can be recounted. One, for example, is a 16-year-old girl in a Middle Eastern country. Her brother killed her in a gruesome way, runs out into the street and yells, I have killed my sister to cleanse our family's honor. What had the sister done to deserve such a killing? she'd become the victim of rape. Now, of course, those are extreme examples. 
But Tennant writes that there are thousands of murders and mutilations using hot oil or ignited gasoline which occur, many of which are never reported. If they're investigated, they are, according to many human rights organizations, officially ruled an accident or a suicide. Well, why open a sermon like this? Why talk about this at all, especially in the middle of a series on community? Well, here's the reason. Because we Westerners are radically individualistic. But one of the keys to understanding this passage is that Peter's writing into an honor and shame society. We see it there at the end of verse 6. It says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And then verse 7, it says, so the honor is for you who believe. We can push this a little bit further, actually. The word translated precious in verses 4 and 6 is entimon, which could be with honor. So Peter is pressing onto these people this understanding of shame and honor. And it's not a concept which grabs us as Western individualists. We tend to filter everything through the grid of what is best for me, what is the most comfortable, what is the most beneficial. But in an honor and shame culture... It doesn't work that way. Because the shame and honor can only be experienced in the larger context of the surrounding community. You're granted honor by that community. You're shamed by that community. And throughout this section, Peter was calling his first readers to a deep and abiding community. Those in the community will receive great honor. But those outside the community will be put to shame. There can be no hint of the American rugged individualism here. No, this is a deeply united church. Peter's calling them to live as the people of God. That is, to live as a spiritual temple. So with that in mind, we will work through this passage under three points. First, we'll look at being built on the cornerstone. This is verses 4 through 6. And then the stone which divides in verses 7 and 8 and proclaiming his excellencies in 9 and 10. So one more time, being built on the cornerstone, the stone which divides, and proclaiming his excellencies. Now each of these three points, there's a powerful emphasis on God's sovereign work and on human responsibility, and I'll try to draw those out as we go through. So first, being built on the cornerstone. Look with me again at verses 4 through 6. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So first, we see this human responsibility, this active element of as we come to him. Uh, We're we're not just rocks. We're not just stones merely being mortared together. We're living stones who come to him. And as we come to him, which is our responsibility, we also then see God's sovereign work of building us up. See, God is the builder. He is the one who is doing the work. You see the passive there. We are being built up. God is the one setting the stones, as it were. He's the one who decides where they go, how they are placed, how they are linked to each other, and that they are built on the foundation, the cornerstone, which is Christ. Uh, We see this because God himself says he will lay the cornerstone in verse 6, does he not? And this should remind us of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, of Jesus saying, I will build my church. 
In other words, the radical assumption of this passage is that, friends, you're not here because you chose to be here ultimately. You're here because God is building his church. You are here because God has set you on this stone and he's united you to these stones. So the first thing we see is God is the ultimate builder. But of course, we are also living stones. We are those who are united mortared together. You see, my dad was a mason, and so I, I look around. We don't have brick in here, but I look around, I see brick, and I'm always seeing, oh, is that, a, is that a real brick wall? Does it have a soldier course that ties the wall together? You see the typical running bond pattern where bricks are stacked like this, so you can't separate them. Oftentimes, they'll even they'll run rebar through those bricks so they cannot be torn apart without deeply destroying parts of that building or wall. We are built And so Peter goes on to say, well, how are we built? First, we're built upon the cornerstone. We are built on Jesus Christ and united to him and each other. And now Peter's going to go and mix the metaphors here, is he not? He's going to say that we're those who are built to be a holy priesthood and then also to be a sacrifice. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, that's kind of a unique thing to say. Because you're you're, you're both? You're, You're both the priest and the sacrifice that the priest offers? Well, that's what it looks like to be a living stone. See, the Reformers spoke of the church and all the members of the church as being priests, the priesthood of all believers. We are all those who are to be radically set apart, as he's going to go on to say. We are all those who are offering up living sacrifices of our lives, as Matt covered two weeks ago in Romans chapter 12. The same thing is seen here. Under the old covenant, the people were basically passive. They brought the animal, and the priest did the work. The set-apart priest did the sacrificing. But friends, not anymore. If you are united to this church, if you are united to God's people, then you are both a priest who mediates, who serves, who offers living sacrifices. You do both. So what this means, then, is in the new covenant, we are those who are giving of our time, talents, treasures to God. And to each other. Now, the first question this would have then for Christians is how are you being built up? What does that look like for you? Are you those living as priests, inseparably united to Christ and to each other? God is the builder, but we live in this consumeristic age. We tend to view things like we would items that you buy. What's the return policy? You know, where's my 30 days before Amazon won't let me send this back for most of my money? That's the tendency in our American individualistic age. But you'll find no hint of this here with Peter. No, Brett McCracken mentions this consumeristic idea in his excellent little book, Uncomfortable. He writes this. Consumerism is about unlimited choice, unlimited speed. We choose exactly what we want, take only what we want, and we move on. This mindset has infiltrated the way we approach church as the thing we can design according to our checklist of preferences. And if the church stops catering to our desires or makes us uncomfortable, we move on, hoping for something new, new heights of satisfaction. The dream church is always a potential out there somewhere. Again, church, if God is the builder, and if he has set you here ultimately, then are you fighting against God and how you react to the church around you? and to your placement within the body. See, if I'm being perfectly honest, this is something that has been a deep wrestle for myself for the last couple months since we have closed down the table church. Please don't take this the wrong way, but I tried not to come here. 
I really did. I told Matt no. And then he sent Dan after me. And then he came back after me again. And then he sent Chris after me. No, really, the Holy Spirit was working. But see, I had my plans. I had my ideas. I wanted to do certain things. I was like, yeah, there's a revitalization out there I want. Or I want to plant a church. I really, I wanted to do something a little different in my mind. But God wouldn't let me stay. And so reading and studying for this passage this week, be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what you've been showing me these last couple months. I, I am a living stone, but I'm a stone. I don't get to set myself. I get set by him. And the Lord made it abundantly clear as Jess and I kind of prayed through and said, all right, we, you know what, if they will have us, then that, that is where the Lord is calling us. So we, we said yes. We went through the interview process with the elders and waiting for an offer from them. And three days before I get the offer, my job laid me off. So it was like the Lord saying, guess what? That's exactly where I'm sitting you. So sit there and be quiet. Church, I need this reminder, and I think you do as well, that you're not here because of you, ultimately. You're here because God is the builder. And he sets his stones. Oh, you are living stones. And he sets you here for his purpose, for his glory, and secondarily, for our good. A second point which needs to be drawn from this section is this is all in the Greek southern, the y'all. This is the all y'all. It's all of its plural. So this is a corporate issue. God is building us together. There's no individual you here. This is all of you. You corporate are being built together. So let me push on something here, is to say this, this time right now as we corporately gather on Sunday morning is far more important than any private or family devotion that you will have the rest of the week. Don't get me wrong, private devotions, family devotions and worship are critically important. They're so necessary. But friends, we are a corporate body. The building doesn't worship by pulling a stone out and taking it over here to worship by itself. We are united together. And so our worship together, coming to Christ together. One commentator put it like this. The significance and purpose of the individual Christian cannot be realized apart from community with other believers coming to Christ. Coming to Christ means coming into relationship with others, which of course makes sense. It's one of the first and second greatest commandments. Love God and love others. Love those around you. Now, Peter grounds all of these exhortations for us to be united to both Christ and each other by quoting Old Testament scripture. Now, we're not going to have the time to go and dig through all of them. We heard from Psalm 118 earlier, particularly here in verse 6, you're going to see from Isaiah 28, 16, about how God is setting a stone in Zion. But here's the point. By grounding his argument in scripture, Peter's underlying assumption is this, that the people of God are built by the Spirit of God through the ministry of the word of God. Or maybe to put it a little differently, Jesus is the foundation of the building upon which the spirit builds us up through these words about the word. So friends, this is why our coming as a church, as a corporate people of God, must revolve around the ministry of the word. We read the word. We preach the word. We pray the word. We sing the word. And we even see the word in baptism, in the Lord's Supper. Private devotions are wonderful, but friends, the corporate gathering of the church, which God himself is the builder, is the central component of the Christian life. Nothing else will substitute and satisfy ultimately. So membership in the local church is radically important. 
that is us acknowledging that God is the builder and he has united us to these people, us submitting to where he has placed us and with whom he has placed us. A third thing is this passage grabs on to a theme which actually runs the entire Bible. You, you might be able to actually summarize the story of the Bible like this. It's a story about God's presence, about where God's presence is to exist. So, for example, we see in the beginning was God. He created the world, and he dwelt with his people in the garden, did he not? He walked with them in the cool of the day. What happens to God's presence? Well, as the story continues on, they're removed from his presence because sin cannot coexist with a holy God. Do you dare not come into the holy God's presence unless you're perfect? That's exactly why the reason when God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai that the people stand back and they say, Moses, you go. We dare not approach the holy God because the presence of God is a fearful thing unless you're perfect. And that is exactly why when the tabernacle is built, there's a thick veil that protects the people. The veil's not there to protect God. It's to protect the people that his holiness might not break out against them and consume them. And so they walk around with the presence of God shielded behind the veil. And you move into the temple, and the same thing happens. The veil is still there, and Isaiah pictures it as God sitting on his heavenly throne and his feet draping down and resting upon the ottoman of the Ark of the Covenant, as it were. But what happened? The people committed radical idolatry. And so Ezekiel says that he saw the presence of the Lord depart. The temple is now Ichabod. There's no more presence. And you can read the rest of the Old Testament and look, never again does God's presence take up residency in a building. No more dead stones. But one day, it was said that in the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh. And he tabernacled. He dwelt. He presenced among us. And how does that work out? Well, that's the theme Peter picks up on here. God is building you into a spiritual house, a house indwelt by the Spirit. We, as the people of God, indwelt by the Spirit of God. And as we gather, we do so in expectation and longing for the day when we will be in that city where there is no temple because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. That is a theme Peter is grabbing here. It is a theme that should cause us to see our radical union with Christ and with each other. So, as already mentioned, though, he's going to take a second step to deal with this issue of you're either united to that potty, to that people, and you'll receive great honor, or you're going to be outside and you'll be shamed. So that's verses 7 and 8. Would you look at those with me? So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Now perhaps you were reading this passage this past week or even just now as we've read through it and you're thinking, this is an incredibly dichotomous passage. It's very divisive. It is incredibly exclusive, perhaps, to use our modern language. And it's all dividing on this issue of Christ. Do you reject him? Or do you accept him? See, if you're here today, and maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you have, you have not repented and believed in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, then perhaps the dichotomous nature of this passage, the exclusivity, is rather alarming to you. Perhaps it's, it's very uncomfortable. 
I mean, one of the things these days that is rather repulsive is to be exclusive, to say that there's anybody who doesn't belong, there's anybody who should be outside. Well, friends, there are certainly kinds of exclusivity that are really important. I mean, really sinful, rather. So, for example, all forms of racism, sexism, and others, those are horrible, awful exclusivities. Those are disgusting, and they should rightly be renounced. That type of exclusivity has no place. But that's not every kind of exclusivity. There are many other kinds of of exclusion which make perfect sense. Uh, For example, I, I have a hard time believing that there's really anybody who doesn't believe that murderers should be excluded from society for a period of time, to some degree. I have a hard time believing that there's really any society that says that rapists and molesters should not be excluded from society for a certain amount of time and to a certain degree. We all believe that there should be some level of exclusion in life. The real question of when it comes down to exclusion is this. By what standard? By what authority? How do you decide who is in and who is out? Well, that comes down oftentimes to the community's document. So, for example, uh, Pride Northwest is a nonprofit here in Portland. They put on the Portland uh, Waterfront Festival and Parade. If you go on their Facebook page, it, it has their mission statement. And their mission statement is essentially their statement their, of authority. It says, this is who is in and this is who is out. If you agree with this, we welcome you into our community. If you disagree with this, we won't have nothing to do with you. Get out of our community, at least as far as for serving in their community goes. You see, every community uses a standard. And what Peter lays out here is this. The standard is what do you do with Christ? That's the standard. You're in or out based off of one real central issue. What do you do with Christ? Or maybe as Jesus put it, who do you say I am? That's the standard. That is how we make this decision. So if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he did what he said he was, he did, then you will be those who are honored, the passage says. Honored because Jesus is honored and we are united to him. So we receive the honor of the precious, the with-honored stone. It comes to us as being united to him. But this does raise another question as to what Jesus are we talking about? You see, friends, there's a lot of different Jesuses on display nowadays. For example, down the road from my house, there's a United Church of Christ. And they claim to be teaching the way of Jesus. And their website states this. We are an open and affirming, progressive Christian church seeking to live Jesus' vision of inclusion or inclusive community and mission. So they believe that Jesus is radically inclusive and that he's on mission. I have a hard time with that when I come to passages like John eight forty five, where Jesus says this, because I tell you the truth, you do not believe. Notice, Him telling the truth causes their unbelief. It's not like, although I tell you the truth, you still don't believe. No, it's him speaking truth actually causes their unbelief. Now, if that's hard to wrap your head around, I prove to you that every single one of you know this is a truth and you agree with it. Because if you've ever been around a two-year-old and you said to them, it's bedtime, that causes their unbelief. (laughs) That causes rage. I think that is the inspiration of everything that happens on those cartoons when you see the little, little guy go red and steam come out of his ear. is telling a two-year-old the truth, that it's bedtime. But here's the issue. Notice what's going on there. What he's saying is the truth causes their unbelief, meaning they hate the truth. When you show up and say, God is Lord and you are not, 
there's only two options. You either say yes and amen, or you respond with rage. No, you are not. And you despise the truth. Jesus says a similar thing in Matthew 13, 11. The disciples come to him and say, why are you teaching in parables? Like, nobody understands you. And he says, because to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. But to them it has not been given. Friends, Jesus is a radically divisive Lord and ruler and king. He is the central point which divides the entire world. I mean, for the years we have divided time around that issue of the king who came. And Peter says, that's the issue that divides everybody. What do you do with Jesus? Peter has the temerity to say something that sets most people just really uncomfortable. In verse 8b, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Do you hear that language? Now, before you get overly uncomfortable, read the verse closely. They disobeyed human responsibility. Friends, they are culpable. They were confronted with bedtime, or rather with King Jesus, and they hated the truth. They disobeyed. But in the mysterious providence of God, it is perfectly in line with him working out his decree in time. So notice then how these incredibly divisive verses for Peter, they're doing something in his argument. See what is happening in his argument. So Peter has just gotten declaring this radical unity. I mean, so united. We are those mortared to Christ himself and to each other. But then he comes and says, but you're only united. You're only mortared to those who look to Christ. You're only united to those who are united to the true Christ of the word of God, which is why he keeps reaching into the Old Testament to prove who the Christ was, because he's using scripture. Those who proclaim a different Jesus, a Jesus of radical inclusion, friends, they're not united to us in the body. And if they continue in that unbelief, they will be put to shame. Every time we are confronted with Jesus and his gospel, we move towards him or away. Friends, there's no neutrality. There's, there's never a time when someone hears the gospel and goes, maybe, not ultimately. Ultimately, you're moving towards him in repentance or away from him in hardening and judgment. And this was much clearer in the early church because the early church said, Jesus is Lord. So you can't have a neutrality with the Lord. Nobody ever went before an ancient king and said like, you know, I'm thinking about it. Like, maybe I'll submit. You'd lose your head if you tried that. It didn't work that way. No, Jesus is Lord, friends. What you do with him, every time you come and gather and you sit under the word, and every time you read the gospel and you hear it and you sing it, you're either moving towards him in repentance and awe, or you're moving away from him towards shame and judgment. Now, if this is what this passage is saying, and it seems hard to understand it any other way, if no one remains neutral, then that does lead us to a rather interesting question. Why do missions? Why evangelism? I mean, if this is the way it is, then why do we press on with evangelism? Well, that's the third point, proclaiming his excellencies. Let's read verses 9 and 10 together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received 
mercy. See, Peter continues his pulling from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, from Exodus, from Isaiah, from Malachi, and he applies this language, which was all used of Israel in the Old Testament, and he applies it to this motley crew of suffering Christians. Remember, he called them the the exiles, the the diaspora, those scattered, the, the suffering, the sojourners, this group of Jews and Gentiles all kind of mushed together. And he said, now you are the people of God. And he applies this language to them. And one commentator puts it this way. They, they noted how this, this view of the early church as this chosen race, this unique thing, it caused the rest of the Roman Empire to do a couple things. First, it caused the Roman Empire to see Christians as those who like to alien other people, to push people away. But that's what the Romans said. They, they actually said that they thought, thought some Christians were haters of mankind. But paradoxically, as Matt has mentioned the last couple of weeks, it was their radical separateness which actually became radically attractive, which caused them to grow and grow and win over multitudes. So this shows us a couple things. Christians are to be unique and separate from the world, so distinct that it is clear that we are an alien race in that sense. That, and if we lose that holiness, that set-apartness, we are losing something central to the Christian life. As those united to Christ, friends, we will always be at odds with the culture to a greater or lesser degree. There will never be a culture where we will be perfectly comfortable, where we will perfectly fit, because we're set apart. We're a priesthood that's been set apart. But that leads to the second thing, that our separateness, our holiness, is meant to be massively attractive. You know why? Because we're weird. That's why. What I mean is this, is Jesus said that the world will know you by your love for each other. That as the watching world gets to see this weird group of people from all different kind of walks and lives and, and nations and ethnicities, as they're, as they're put together and they imperfectly love each other and they limp towards Jesus together, forgiving sins, bearing up underneath one another, as we heard last week, that that to a watching world is like a beacon of hope. And they go, how did these weird people love each other so well. That is precisely what Jesus got at in his prayer in John 17, that the world may know by your love they will know that God sent him. So as this becomes more and more of a reality, as we come to more and more look like the neighborhood and demographic around us, they will see us coexisting as these weird group of people, old, young, different, different parts of strata, different backgrounds, as we come together as a group that shouldn't coexist, that shouldn't be bound together, mortared together, that as that happens, the world is in awe. And that's precisely what happens here in verse 9. You notice there's a purpose clause that happens there. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, the purpose, the reason why God has bound you, united you, mortared you onto Christ and to each other is for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In one sense, that's actually what it is to be a royal priesthood. We've already mentioned the priests were mediators. The the priests were those who went between God and the people. But now we're all those who are to be priests offering sacrifice. So just as Jesus makes intercession for us, so too we are to make intercession for those around us as we did earlier, praying for their salvation, praying for his kingdom to come in their lives. As Lewis put it, we're to be little Christs, 
Little mediators seeking and saving the lost. Those who are on mission proclaiming the excellencies. So do you see how this addresses the tension he created in the middle part? The middle part of the passage, he basically said, there's a radical division. What you do with Christ, and every time you hear Christ, you are separated one way or the other. But his commission to us is to be proclaimers, not judgers. Our call is to be those who, as a corporate people of God, proclaim his excellencies. We don't pass judgment. There's some sitting here today who might be hearing the gospel and might be moved towards shame because they're believing a little less. But that's not my point. That's not why I exist. I exist to proclaim his excellencies. We as a church exist to proclaim his excellencies. And sometimes God hardens people so much way beyond the point of what we might think is no return to radically save them because he's a God who radically saves people. A couple examples. Christopher Yuan, I believe he's still a professor at Moody, has an incredible testimony, which I'd encourage you to look up. Rosaria Butterfield's another one. If you haven't read her, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. There's a story where many Christians would just say, she was way beyond the point of no return. You could even read that, according to Romans 1, that her life was so dedicated to this radical lesbian feminism that it was a judgment of God, according to Romans 1. And yet he saved her. So sometimes the gospel presses so hard and it shames people so much that God uses that person to be a magnificent beacon of just how incredible his grace is. So we, friends, are not judges. We're proclaimers. We corporately proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. This is still the y'all. It's still the plural. So how are a couple ways that we do this? Well, one, friends, as we've already said, is this right here, the gathering on Sunday morning, that we take one of our days off during the week and we set aside time to gather and to worship together. That's one of the ways we do it. It's the rhythms of life. But let me push a little bit more specifically into, into something about what we do here. Is I would encourage you, friends, if this is a corporate passage, and it must be, because again, the stones are united to Christ and each other, then here's a really practical thing I would encourage you to do. Is as we sing together, remember you're singing to God and each other. Sometimes open your eyes and just look around at the rest of the people worshiping God. I would encourage you to make a habit of this. They'll get used to it. The point is, is we are together worshiping. In no other point in life do we ever cause ourselves to hide the most joyful moments of our life. We always share the most joyful moments of our life with everybody else around us. Sometimes you just call people you haven't talked to in 10 years. It's like, you know what just happened? So friends, every Sunday when you worship the King of Kings, this is the most joyful moment. Look at your brothers and sisters and see them rejoicing. One of the central pieces of this sermon series has been dealing with community groups and the call. And as you build those relationships in community, you'll be thinking about each other and praying for each other. And as a song causes you to think of that brother or sister, you can look at them and be like, praise God that this song is true of you. Friends, open your eyes. Worship corporately. Worship together. Worship as a united house in the spirit of God. Partially going on again from there is proclaiming his excellencies in community groups. In community groups, it's beautiful because we're pushing into the community, and that is where we can get down into the less than corporate level. Sunday mornings are corporate, primarily. We are here for the church, for the spiritual house. We're here as a body to honor God together and to encourage each other in honoring and worshiping God together. 
But community groups are beautiful because they let us press into individual lives and individual neighborhoods and communities. That is where you can do things like barbecues and, and block parties and have those opportunities. And again, praying for those. But Father, we believe you have many people in these neighborhoods. So Lord, open up doors and opportunities and allow them to hear what you are doing. And Holy Spirit, take them and unite them to your people. Another thing you might add is with that evangelism comes maybe tryouts, maybe personal relationships. Community groups can be very evangelistic, but also just as a church. One of the things the elders are praying about for this next year is how do we best use the resources God has given us as a community, this church, to be a light in this neighborhood, to be a beacon in this neighborhood. Those are things we should be praying for together, that those things would bear much fruit, that God would use them powerfully. Well, all of this communal work, all of this proclaiming the excellencies of God actually flow from the idea of verse 10, that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. The once you had not received mercy, but now you had been mercied. I say it had been mercy because that's actually a verb. It's, it's not a noun. It's a verb. God is the actor. He mercies. And this is a fulfillment of Hosea. You see, in Hosea, the, the picture was this. The people had so violated the covenant, they had obliterated it. So God's very people had become not his people in a very real sense. And yet he says to them, who had not been his people, who had violated the covenant, one day... I will make you who are not my people, my people. And that is ultimately fulfilled in the new covenant of Jesus. The new covenant where he now takes those people, Jew and Gentile, and he makes them his people. No longer do ethnic lines and boundaries separate us. The next section, as we'll see next week, goes on to say that now the church are the people of God and everyone outside of the church are the Gentiles. That that is what God is doing. So in the fullest sense, these words of Hosea are being fulfilled every time God takes someone out of his kingdom, out of their kingdom of darkness, and brings them into his kingdom of marvelous light. Every time someone hears the gospel and God mercies them, taking their heart of stone, giving them a heart of flesh, God is making a people from those who were not his people. Again, I say mercy because that is a verb. The standard Greek lexicon, the BDAG, says this. That, that, that verb means to be greatly concerned about someone in need. It means to have compassion, mercy, and pity on someone. You see, throughout this whole section, I've hoped you've seen that God is the actor. All the verbs are God. God is the builder. We are the ones being built. God is the one who honors and shames, depending upon if you believe or disbelieve in Christ. And here, God is the one who calls people to be his people. And God is the one who mercies people. And of course, what is startling about this, about this whole section, this entire idea of being built on the stone of Christ, being united and mortared together with one another, is that in order for God to accomplish that purpose, which was to spill over in us proclaiming the excellencies of his glory, is that the three things God does in this passage for us are the three things he denied to Christ. You see, friends, for God to make us living stones built upon the living cornerstone, he had to crush his son to death. For God to allow us to be honored, he had to dishonor and shame his son, stripping him naked and having him put up 
on a cross. And for God to mercy us, he had to completely reject any compassion or pity on his son. Friends, I hope you see the radical nature of the church. When we come to see it built on such a cost as that, how can we not see our lives as not something that we get to primarily choose, but rather as something that God is doing to us for his glory and for our good? So may we trust him that he is the master builder, that he is uniting us to precisely the right people we need for him to do his work in our lives and in the world around us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your work that you are doing through your word. That as we gather as those who are being built, that as we come more and more to believe in what you have done through your son, and as Holy Spirit, you in each of our lives unite us to Christ and to each other, that would you give us a great and abiding joy, even in the moments of uncomfortability, in the moments of trial and suffering, would you trust, would you help us to trust you as our master builder? In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.